0: This is the Profitable Python with your host Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Brett, the wise guy developer. Brett is a full stack developer who is passionate about programming. He loves to make people laugh and has an extensive experience working with all sizes of companies from startups to large corporations. He has experience or his experience spans many sectors such as financial, engineering, and e commerce. And he has a background in nutrition. Brett, welcome to the show.
1: Hey Ben, how are you doing, man? Excellent. How
0: I'm, I'm happy to have you on here too, Brett. This is going to be a great one. So uh, just to kick this off, I wanted to ask you, uh, where do you see the biggest opportunity for Python developers to monetize their skills in the, in the current environment?
1: In the current environment, I think especially for people that are starting out, uh, coaching, mentoring on any one of the various platforms, whether it's CodeMentor, take lessons. it's a great way to earn money pretty much immediately, right, so as soon as you get approved. Uh, some of them have different thresholds, so they may be a little harder to crack into, but as you get experience and reputation, uh, you can foray into those environments. Uh, but that's a great way to, to, one, learn really quickly yourself, right? Ramp up on different things uh, because you'll kind of be forced to, but at the same time, you're getting paid for it, right? Uh, so with any of these, you probably want to maybe give off a couple of free sessions to, be, to begin with, you know, just to build your reputation because it's a little bit of a catch-22. It's the old, well, you need experience to get experience. So if you are just starting out on a platform and somebody maybe looks down and doesn't see any reviews, they might have a little trepidation about, well, should I, should I be the Guinea pig here? But if you've gained at least a few reviews and I, I saw this pattern, you know, actually occur with me, right. Mm-hmm. As soon as I landed that first one, the second one followed pretty quickly afterwards. And now that I have, a, you know, a half a dozen or so plus reviews, you know, uh, I'm finding more and more people are starting to reach out. They're responding.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: that had to have been kind of scary to kick that off, right? Like, or, or was it like this natural progression? You're like, Oh, I'll go apply on wise or, or like, how did you overcome any kind of fears maybe that, uh, that
2: cropped Uh, up?
1: With CodeMentor, I think the, probably the, the greatest, uh, concern or fear is probably just a natural one. It's not so much imposter syndrome, but it's probably sort of an offshoot of that where, um, you know, like, well, can I really solve the problem that they're asking? And, and and you know, the cautionary tale is read the assignment thoroughly, right? Whatever the re- request is, make sure, don't just sort of glance at it. You might take a really super quick look and be like, okay, is this anywhere in my domain, you know, my knowledge domain? You know, maybe they're they're asking about our programming, and you've never done it. And so maybe something like that, you kind of, especially in the beginning, maybe you filter that out. Mm-hmm. Um, because you do have to weigh okay, especially when you're giving free sessions, you know, how much time is this truly going to take me? Well, if it's going to take you like four hours to wade through it um, and you're especially, you're not getting paid for it or it's going to maybe be a 15-minute session, you got to weigh that. You know, is this really worth the investment? You know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe if you're trying to, you know, uh, get some entree into a brand new area and you're like, well, this is going to motivate me to, to learn about it, fine. Then that's a, that's a worthwhile investment. But otherwise, I'd say you, you want to try to have some sort of criteria that you go through to figure out is this something i'm interested in or not just so you, so that's where maybe a quick glance but once you're kind of committing to it then you need to read through whatever that request is thoroughly whatever the details are and a lot of times i'll ask for more details because sometimes it's like a one-liner you know mm-hmm. um so i'll try to get as much information up front as possible because They may even characterize it as really simple. I've had this before. It's like an SQL thing. Oh, I just need to do this. And then you start reading through the assignment. You're like, wait a second. This is not like a two minute thing, right? Right? Um, They don't understand that. So you have to kind of explain that to them first. And then you're like, wait a second. This is maybe areas I haven't even dealt with before. So it may take me a little longer than I thought. You don't want to figure that stuff out while you're in the middle of the session.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, as far as like preparation for those sort of things, like like if you kind of ratioed it out, like is it a is it a four to one preparation or a one to one, like one hour prep for a one hour call, or or is it all over the place depending on the nature of the of the work?
1: I think it's a little all over the place. So I think it's proportional to your knowledge in that particular area, um, okay. and I have found that there are there are a lot of requests that span multiple knowledge, you know, or knowledge domains or skills, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody may have a question, maybe it's predominantly SQL, uh, but there's some JavaScript mixed in, or maybe there's some Python mixed in. So Mm -hmm. depending on your strengths in those various areas. So if you've got most of like 90% of it covered and there's just a little bit, so that's probably not going to take as much prep. If you're Mm -hmm. going in pretty much cold where you're ramping up on everything. Yeah. That's where maybe there's a lot more where the ratio is obviously going to be more hours of prep to, you know, less hours of of actual time. Um, And in some cases you get lucky and it's something like super simple. I had one like that where literally it's like no prep. You just jump on with the guy and you solve it. It's like 10 minutes later, you Mm -hmm. know? So um, it is a little over the map, but um, that's where maybe the filtering I mentioned comes into, because if you're looking and you're saying, Hey, I've got a real good handle on this. This is gonna take me minimal prep. To me, that that's the the best payoff, the best ROI is if you look at something like, man, I've got 80, 90% of the knowledge or 100 percent of the knowledge I need. I this won't take me long to solve. Frankly, I can probably look at it for two minutes and then jump jump on a call. Those mm-hmm. are the best. The more of those you can handle, the the better. Right. Um, but like I said, it's it's uh, the balancing act of maybe there's an opportunity to to get into another area that you don't know quite as well, but it's going to kind of force you to lo- ramp up a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that maybe you're doing more prep, but it's going to pay dividends down the line.
0: Okay, excellent. And and something. So it really sounds like your full stack background really has been paying dividends. Do you have any um, recommendations for like the one trick ponies out there? Like how do they? Like if you only know Python is. Is is this still a viable way to kind of get uh, uh, get started, knowing you'll just have to grind, or like what do you, what do you have uh, uh, advice for the one trick ponies out there? I guess. So
1: for the one trick ponies, uh, I, I think the best thing to do is that's where you have to cast a much broader net, right? So if you, are for instance, if you're at, at the moment, I'm predominantly really on Code Mentor. I haven't really had okay. time to branch out into the other ones, mm-hmm. but I'm getting satisfactory return on Code Mentor where I don't at the moment. Have as much motivation or pressure to. I do want to branch out, mm-hmm. um, but for somebody who's particularly has strength in really only one area, that's where you may have to cast that broader net. Because if you're, for instance, let's say on a wise ant, and there's going to be a limited number, right, of some subset that is just Python, that's literally just Python, mm-hmm. right? So obviously, well, now I go to take lessons. Well, now I just added some other potential, you know, clients and and or mentees. And, you know, if I add another one, another one. So that that's where maybe you're maintaining five of these things because you just need the quantity, right? Um, yeah. Now, the other part of that to me is, um, you know, let's say you've, you know, for instance, uh, I don't know, you, um, you know, you're on a place like Wiseant, whatever. And, you know, it is Python. The other issue is that you are competing against other people, right? So the more sort of, general that request is. So the, the less specific domain knowledge is, is required.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's more of a commodity and now you're competing against greater people. So that's where if you, you know, like on code it'll actually tell you how many people are interested. So somebody puts out a request and they'll say 14 interested. So mm-hmm. if you look, you can see the proportional responses. So if somebody's asking about like machine learning, AI, something or some specific, really specific area, you mm-hmm. know, maybe it's like React or something like that, there's less people that know that area. So you're naturally going to get less people interested. Um, It may even be the complexity of what they're asking, right? It's going to limit the people. But certainly, Mm. if the more generic you get, so if it's, okay, it's just Python, and it's sort of a generic, hey, I'm trying to debug this little program. You may have a lot more people jumping into that, throwing throwing their hat in the ring than you would in the other cases.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, and you kind of bring up some, like, instantly when you answered that question, like some things started triggering in my head, like, So, because there seems to be this huge uh, uh, trend basically to, well, first of all, freelancing development and like that whole developer lifestyle, like people, there's this huge trend for that. And then uh, on top of that, it's like one of the ways that you accomplish that is by applying to these platforms. So I'm just wondering what you see for the future. And maybe you've already answered this, but like, what is the future for that kind of business model of, of uh, freelancer development? uh, free, yeah. Freelance development like that.
1: Uh, Yeah. I I think it's a fantastic question. I think, I think it's really wide, a wide open expanse. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. kind of the frontier. I I think there's a few different angles with that. I think for the one thing it, it, you talk about, um, the global economy, right? Mm -hmm. That is a perfect illustration of global economy because now literally somebody in their underwear in Bangladesh can log on just the same as somebody in New York.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And so potentially are competing for the same clients. Now that also means that you're, you've got a greater marketplace too, right? And hopefully those things stay relatively proportional, right? Um, And and I think it's at the early stages that I think the competition is much less of an issue. It may become more of an issue in the future. Um, So I think that's one element of it. Another element though of the freelance stuff is it opens I think companies up to the ideas of hiring more remote developers. I still think there's a bias against it for multiple reasons. I mm-hmm. think there's a natural sort of distrust about a guy that a manager can't lay his eyes on. Right. So okay. the manager knows it's like, Hey, you know, he's sitting in his office with his cup of coffee and eight you know, eight fifty-five AM rolls around. The guy looks down at his watch. He's looking outside who's at his queue. Right. right. And, and so the fact that you walked in the door, right. Sit down at your desk. And then leave it, you know, maybe after, you know, after the manager leaves, the manager's sitting there saying, yeah, that guy's working Now, Whether you're actually getting something done is a completely <laughs> different story, right? You may be sitting there on YouTube videos the whole day and they don't know any better, but right. it gives them kind of the warm and fuzzy to say, yeah, this guy's coming in every day. Now, the guys who, who is, who's at home, ironically, may be putting in far more hours than the guys right. in the office, but the manager doesn't know that. They're not looking at it. He's sitting there thinking, no, I know that dude ran out to the beach you know, and he's typing, you know, on his laptop, you know, watching the surf rolling, Mm. you know, and, and, and frankly, it's, it can set up some jealousy amongst other team members. Like you're working at home, people are like, shoot, man, I wish I could do that. Um, Mm. like I said, you know, even when I, when I did that post the remote stuff is you get disrupted by just regular family stuff, right? There's, it's harder to have boundaries when you're working at home. But I do think that that by having enough of this freelance stuff out there, I think it's, it's going to uh, get rid of some of, you know, I think the stereotypes that these guys, that the managers have built up in their minds, right? I still think that for the most part, if, if you have two people, equal skills, et cetera, that walk in for a job, you know, a job posting and one guy's local and the other guy is remote, 90% of the time, the guy who's local is going to just win. That's yeah. the reality. But there are companies who are not even open to hiring somebody remote, like nothing, And so maybe this cracks them open and they begin to figure out, okay, you know, we can, we can rely on this, you know, here's, especially if you come in with maybe a portfolio show and look at what I've been doing, right? I've been motivated. I've been doing this on my own. They're like, okay, this guy seems like he puts in hours, he puts in work. Here's some proof. Yeah, we feel a little bit better. Um, I actually had somebody reach out when I did a a story question on um, Instagram where the guy was like, well, the way this company does it is you can work from home, but only after you prove yourself. Hmm. Like you're on sort of probation, so it's kind of, <laughs> of until proven innocent. It's right. like we don't trust you. We know you're right. going to goof off at home, so you better prove it here in the office first, and then we'll let you have up to two or three days. And I told the guy, I said, "Do what they ask, so you can work from home and get that immediate benefit, or, you know, or their short-term benefit." I said, "But in the long term, I'd probably look for another company to go, right. Because you're starting off with distrust. That's a bad right. place to be."
0: Man, that's uh, it's it's like the little can of worms that you just opened up there, <laughs> maybe we could dig into it a little bit. Cause it's like, it's crazy. Like if you, we have this global economy and you know it would make sense for you, for example, to be able to call on a company regardless of where they are on this planet. But you're basically going in there fighting an uphill battle because the local guy, he could be half as skilled and yep. the job. So what, what kind of recommendations do you have for people that are like calling on, on businesses, trying to, promote themselves and they're going from like a remote developer like is it just a law of averages thing like where you're like some people are going to be receptive to this some aren't or is there some way to call on them to kind of build the trust or build the rapport and be like look i'm going to do a good job for you but i'm based out of new mexico you're in michigan and we're going to make this project awesome like how what do you what do you say to to that scenario or how do you help somebody in that situation?
2: It's,
1: yeah. Thanks, Ben. It's interesting you bring that up because I've actually been faced with that scenario a few different times mm-hmm. where I got called by a, you know, a recruiter and they're like, well, they're really not open to remote, you know, where uh, they're really leading heavily to somebody local. And I always try to put forth to them to say, look, I understand if they find somebody equal, I'm deferring to the local guy. I, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. Please float it out to them that, you know, that, you know, here's somebody who's, who's already worked remote, been responsible. We can prove that and at least open up their minds to at least interview me. If for no other reason, then they now have a reference point. They're like, right. okay, this guy's here's the barometer, right? We, mm. we interviewed this, you know, we interviewed Joe, right. Who who's off in New Mexico and boy, he sounds really good, but we sort of really want to have somebody still remote. I'm sorry. still somebody local versus remote we're going to interview a bunch of local guys and maybe they go through 10 local guys and like, man, none of these guys came anywhere close to Joe. It's like, mm-hmm. you know what, let's just hire the best person. Or maybe there's somebody, boy, this guy's fairly close to Joe. He's local. Okay. We'll give it to him. Mm-hmm. Right. But at least let them open their minds enough where they entertain it. And, and, and it's like, Hey, we're doing your service. Cause, cause we're like plan B, right? If, right. You know, try to find the best guy you can who's local. And if you can't, here's your fallback, dude, you still come in
2: You're right. still
1: not winning. You know, um, I think the easiest way, frankly, to break in with these companies is to be a contractor. So they're much less likely to commit if, they, if they're if treating you as a full-time, you know, bringing you on as a full-time employee, they're paying you benefits, etc. If you're a contractor, especially if like you're a 1099 or something, mm-hmm. it's like, well, it's really easy for them to disengage. So they can bring you on. They don't have to invest much in, into that whole process. And over maybe two, three months, they figure out. This guy is really great, or not so great, right, and then they can move on if they have to. Um, I think the the one thing to check that I always ask the recruiters is, what is the infrastructure of the company? So if you're applying for a really to a really small company, be wary of the fact they may not actually have the infrastructure to bring you on remotely. They may be all aboard, like, oh man, that'd be great. We love this guy, but shoot, we have no way for him to log into our network. You know, they don't have VPNs or you know infrastructure in place. And I've had that or, well, we have it, but it's like super slow and you can't get anything done on it, right? So if they don't have the infrastructure, that's the first thing to figure out. If it's a really large company, you can almost assume that, yeah, they've got that in place. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is to know what's the general policy. So if they already have some a work from home, that's the other thing I usually check. I'm like, hey, do they have any work from home policy? And if they tell me, oh, yeah, we have guys they can work two, three days from home, mm-hmm. then I'm like, okay, we've got our foot in the door. Right, it's halfway open. We don't have to push them quite as far. Whereas the other guys who have a the, the doors locked because they're like, no, we have a you cannot work from home unless there's like a blizzard that day. And I've worked for companies like that where they're like, no, we don't support work from home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In that case, you've got a real uphill battle.
0: Yeah, Uh, man. There's like I prepped out a ton of questions for this, but I'm just uh, if I run out
1: long, let me know. I no,
0: mean, I'm I'm just gonna start. I'm just gonna dig in. Okay. I mean, there's so much, there's so much uh, knowledge jammed up in that brain of yours. We got to, we got to release it <laughs> into the wild here. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So I'm, I'm curious when it comes to like remote development, uh, uh, what sort of like technologies have enabled kind of that process to be a little smoother? Like, do the clients like to work with Slack or is it just traditional email? Like, how are you showing like you're accountable to them? Um, is there like special project management software or can you kind of color that in a little bit?
1: I think that depends whether you're working with like a larger company. So in my okay. case, I do have to fill out a time card. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I'm if, if 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 it's remote, like it's doing Code Mentor, then it's it's tracked through that platform. There, they, when you initiate a session, their account that accounting is taken care of for you. you mm-hmm. know, how much is charged, etc. In the billing, right? That's that's why you're paying them some sort of override fee of twenty percent or something like that, twenty mm-hmm. to forty percent depending on the platform. Um, but in terms of working for a company. Usually, I mean, technically, they could track you through your VPN access. Right. Now, whether companies are going to do that, that's harder to say. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, the metrics exist, whether they're going to, you know, um, investigate those or examine those, that's harder to say. I think it depends on, okay, if you're dealing with a super paranoid company, maybe they've got somebody in IT that's sitting there looking at the logs mm-hmm. and saying, hey, wait a second, that guy's logging at 10.30 every day. He logs off at 2.30. Like, what's going on? Now, there's there's the reality of what are you delivering, right? And that's where you get into this kind of gray area because you can argue that, hey, let's say I'm working 15 hours a week, but I'm meeting every deadline. I'm delivering. Here's my objectives for the week. I delivered everything you asked for. Now, in theory, you would say that's all they care about and – and there are some managers or some companies where it's like, shoot, dude, go to the beach for the next 25. We don't care, right? right? Especially if you're technically your salaried employee, it's not per hour, right? Now, usually it works against you rather than for you. <laughs> it's usually not the 15 hours. It's usually you spent 75 hours, right? right? But, um, and, and effectively you're making less, but, you know, but in theory, if you could do that, then there should be no complaints. But I can tell you that's generally not how it operates in reality. Right. And part of that, I think, gets into sort of the jealousy aspect.
2: You know, mm-hmm.
1: You're sitting there hanging out and and you are getting your work done, but you're having maybe almost too much fun. Right. The other guys aren't. I mean, I I once worked in an office where it was a I was working with like three or four other guys or whatever, and we made up this little team and our boss gave us baby basically carte bunch. I mean, we were playing like chair basketball and stuff with nerf ball, <laughs> but we got our work done. We kicked the butt. Okay. Right. And he loved us and all that. And he was like, he gave us our own little he. Like knocked down a wall in office, and he moved all of us into the same office. That's when the real mayhem kind of started. But we always got our stuff done, (laughs) right? right? Uh, We we were far exceeding the other teams. Well, what happened was the other folks in the office heard the laughter whatever, saw we were having a good time, and somebody complained. You Mm -hmm. know, party pooper, right? Oh, those guys are having – how come they're laughing? They're having fun, and, you know, how come they get their own office, whatever? And then eventually got broke up. He was only able to defend it so long, but it shows – that there's always going to be that envy element to it, and so mm. even if it logically seems like hey everybody's kind of winning here, there's a chance somebody may not see it that way. Like no, no, you got to put your time card in. You got to have the 40 hours. I don't mm. care that you got to die in 12. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you you you're going to be accountable. It depends on on the nature of the company whether they're going to check up on that stuff. Ultimately, it is really what you deliver. You know, if you're not delivering, that's where maybe they're going to dive into the numbers. So, some companies may, may have a, a login where they can track the time. You're going to have to fill in a time card usually, right? You may have to fill in multiple time cards. You may have to fill, so, if you're working, let's say, for a contracting company or a company that would effectively re or subcontractor, you're usually filling out more than one time card because you've got to fill out a time card for the company they placed you at to prove how much time you're spending there. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to fill in the, the company you're working for, with their time card. And usually right. they should be one, one-to-one in most cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe your contractor's working, they've got mo- at multiple companies potentially. So, uh, but that's usually how it's accounted for.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, as far as like scaling goes, like there's only one Brett to go around type things. So how have you kind of navigated that or what are your ideas for improving that?
1: I, it's a constraint right now, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I think to, to what Kazi had mentioned to us, I, I think at some point you have to bring other people into the mix or you have to do some, quarter, some sort of shared experience, you know, experience, right, where you're addressing more than that one person at a time, whether it's a course or something like that, right? There's an offering and you can offer it to more than that single person because you're right. there. And I was speaking to the guys earlier this morning about it. There is a limitation. At some point you will reach a ceiling. Even if you get up to a pretty healthy hourly rate, you're going to hit a particular ceiling. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, it's almost that traditional, you know, live paycheck to paycheck, right? Because if if you're, you know, know, maybe you're making a decent amount, but it's completely predicated on your availability, right? Right. So you're sick for two weeks. You're not earning money for two weeks. Mm -hmm. It's a huge holiday. You're going on vacation for a week or two. You're not earning money. I I learned that early on. It was sort of almost a rude awakening when I, uh, my first contract job, you know, probably 14, 15 years ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I ended up, uh, you know, I actually worked extra hours because I, I loved what I was doing. And and the manager pulled me aside and said, you're running through the bag of money. I'm like, what? He goes, your work, this is where they want you to work the 40 hours a week because they've calculated a certain number of months. And if you blow through that sooner, you're now out on the street looking for another job. You know, you could potentially leverage of- that because mm-hmm. maybe it's a six month project, you get it done in two. And if you If you have a lot of contacts, you could actually turn that to a positive situation and be like, shoot, I just made six months of money in two months, and now I'm going to land another job. So that could be a tremendous win, but you better have everything basically laid out ahead of time, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're not scrambling. And that's, I think, you know, uh, the other part of that with the contracting is that, that you, you know, the first time it's like, oh, great, I'm off on Friday because there's a holiday. And then it's like, oh, I'm not being paid. So if it's all predicated on your availability, then not only do you have that ceiling, but now you, you know, there's a diminishing profit margin because, you know, you can't make money unless you're live, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing about creating content that doesn't require your presence. That's the other leveraging mechanism, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a recorded course or something. Well, now you don't have to be available for that. That to Mm -hmm. me is where you can really scale up. Uh, because now you're earning money when you're not doing anything.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The, uh, so, so regarding like you have a vast amount of experience. So if you kind of had to like start from scratch again and, and be profitable in six months, like what would be your strategy to kind of hacking your way, maybe hack like 30 years of experience into six months, if that's even possible, like what would be your strategy?
1: So I think there's a couple of things uh, you know um, that go go into answering that question. Uh, one thing is I think to go back to what we said at the beginning of the call about coaching, mentoring. I think that's a, that's the quickest way I can think of that. Literally, you can log on, create your account, and within a couple of hours, you know, or whatever the approval process is, right after you get approved, you can be making money. Mm. You know? um, how much you make obviously is going to be related to you know how many requests you can fulfill, but you could be making a living, you know, just based on that. Now, mm-hmm. then to take it further, right, um, I, I think this is where, uh, in terms of condensing experience, right, I think you can ramp up quickly on a lot of different technical skills. I, I think the thing that you can't condense, right, the, you know, over the 30 plus years, mm-hmm. the job experience, the social, you know, interactions, the culture, you know, the different work environments, the different work methodologies, Mm -hmm. Unless you live through that, and even reading through a book or something describing, it's just not going to quite be the same, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the stuff. So you can condense in terms, okay, I ramped up on Python. Maybe somebody else took three years. I just did in six months. I think that stuff, you can take shortcuts. But Mm -hmm. in terms of all the other, a lot of those other soft skills, I think that takes far longer. I don't think there's as many shortcuts in that, you know, in that uh, arena
0: okay and and so it almost sounds like you need to be an avid hunter for experiences like that yeah if you, if you want to grow
1: yeah you- 100% you got to deal with good bosses bad bosses good environments bad environments corporate stuff small companies um, I mean I worked at a company where I was the person (laughs) that going back so long ago, but I was the person literally throwing the, it was terminals connected by wiring, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. I was going up above the suspended ceiling and I would bundle it up, right? Tape it up. And there was a really tall guy. So I stood on, there was a shelving unit that was suspended through. It was like in a warehouse. So I didn't have to worry about falling (laughs) and killing myself on it. Mm -hmm. And I would get up, stand up on that so I could pop my head over the suspended ceiling. I bundle it up and like a football, I would tell him to go to the other room because he was a tall guy. He stood like on a a desk or something. And I would throw it across the suspended ceiling to him on the other side. Now, was that in my job description when they hired me? No, I don't think so. It was like, we need somebody with a good arm that can throw this thing, you know, 30 (laughs) feet, right? That was not there anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where you have to wear a small company. You have to wear every hat. It's not in your job description. So that, you know, there's certain experiences you cannot get at home. There may be right. resources you will not have access to. So if you're trying to deal with things like big data, well, where are you getting that big data? Or I worked at a company where I had to work on a, a switch, you know, um, hardware switch that cost around a million dollars. Hmm. So where are you getting access to that unless you're working for a company that has that stuff in place? So right. I think that's that those are the areas where probably the only way to get that. So that sort of goes back to an earlier point, right? In terms of okay, when you're out mentoring and you're going to these various sites, there may be certain projects that you're limited to applying to because you don't have a way to get the experience in these other areas. Mm-hmm. So you probably need to mine that as deeply as you can. You know, the ones where you do fit, and that's where maybe hey, you know, you you start making money initially. You're coaching, whatever, just so you can you know get the bank account healthy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're interviewing, right? So you spend maybe 10 or 15 hours a week just interviewing, try to land that job, even if you don't have a plan to stay there more than six months to a year. But no. look for something maybe that's going to get you that set of skills. You know, maybe you're seeing something coming across on the feed all the time. It's like, man, I'd love to learn that, but I don't really have a way to do that at home, you know, or not efficiently. So, hey, here's a company that's dealing with that. And shoot, I'll come in. Maybe you're even an intern, right? But you, you just ramp up and absorb that knowledge See, okay, this is what's like. And the other thing you can also figure out is this meant for me? Because maybe you're like, oh, you know what? I actually like being around other people in a company more than I liked being at home. You know, so I think we glamorize the remote stuff, working from home, and and companies do, and that's part of that distrust. Is it feels like it's a perk, so it's treated as, uh, you know, as a benefit, right? And companies see it that way. and Say, like, well, hey, why would you complain about anything? You're working from home. And mm. it's, it's this panacea and it's not, that's not the reality of it. Uh, would I favor it over going to the office? Most of the time, yes, especially if there's a, some horrendous commute involved.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: Otherwise to me, the hybrid is actually kind of the optimal thing. It's yep. you get flexibility to work from home two, three days a week. So even if you've got maybe kind of an onerous kind of commute, it's not going to be too bad because you're only doing it a couple of times a week, mm-hmm. uh, but you then also get the camaraderie and, and it's hard to replace when you can walk to somebody's cube 10 feet away, right. and you guys brainstorm on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Hard to replace that at home.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I can agree with that 100%. I, I had a question, so part of like your six, if you had to get profitable in six months strategy, when it comes to like approaching businesses, um, in the pre-interview, you had mentioned something about, um, like if you had no reputation, how you would start to build that with businesses. And I was, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I I think a great way to go about it is to approach local businesses, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe go to a lot of, a lot of towns. um, I don't know about how this works, maybe internationally, but there's maybe some sort of analog to that Mm -hmm. is they'll have like a chamber of commerce or they'll have business forums or groups that, that convene a certain time. And you try to just get into those. Usually a chamber of commerce is open to everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you go in there and you're like, well, this is where my skills are. I have a little bit of knowledge, maybe, maybe in a financial sector or something. And mm-hmm. you approach companies and say, hey, you know, I noticed, you know, your processes, you know, are, can be automated. You know, and I'm willing to do this, maybe even for free in the, in the beginning, or you know, pay me afterwards if you really see there's value in it. But mm-hmm. there's like no risk, right? Uh, and and I'll go off. I'll take the risk. I'll work for the next two or three months mm-hmm. and deliver something to you, right? They're giving up some time to just go over things with you and check on stuff as you go right but Mm -hmm. to me you're getting that face-to-face interaction it's way easier to convince somebody to go you know and and then they feel more comfortable because they see there's a real person behind it versus Mm -hmm. online i think that's a lot harder to break in that way um and the other thing is well now if you get a reputation sort of in your town and one guy is at a meeting speaking hey you know i just used this guy and he helped me man i saved like 50 grand because this guy you know, I paid him for like four weeks or whatever. And, and now all of a sudden my business, you know, so it's a really good return on investment.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the guy's like, Oh, what's his name? Okay. And they, re- and then just by word of mouth, now all of a sudden you're building a little reputation, right? And then you can leverage that. So now you've got a portfolio showing, look at what I've done for these companies. Mm-hmm. Now you can take that out more into the remote world because now you've got some references some proof behind it. And it's a lot harder to do that you've got to effectively take, somebody's got to take a leap of faith mm. and where there's money involved, they're going to be less likely to do so.
0: Yeah. So like the big key I got out of that was just re- reduce the risk, have some faith in yourself. And then there's also an element of like having thick skin. Like yeah. you don't just, you don't just uh, like, that's not a comfortable situation for, for people. What do you, ha- what do you have to say about that? Like, how did you navigate like thickening your, skin?
1: I, I think you almost have to, expect that the first few are probably not going to go right, right. (laughs) Or you it turn down flat, you know, they may throw you out of the office, whatever, you know? um, So you may want to wear like metal underwear, whatever. So when you kick (laughs) the butt out the door, it doesn't hurt as bad. Right. But um, yeah, you have to basically say, this is not personal, right? They don't know me. When I walk in the door, I am selling a business proposition and you'll refine it as you go. So the first guy you walk into, you may fumble over every word, and mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's like, Oh my God, that was like a mess. Right. You come yeah. out of the, you walk out of the door. It's like, Oh, uh, what the heck? It's like, I went to hire year, Right. Well, learn from that and figure out what is it. And then also you probably want to figure out who do you approach in the office? You know, um, if you know, it's like, who do I contact? Cause to me, that's probably at least half the battle. You know, if you right. to get to the right person in that company, especially somebody who's a decision maker or somebody who can get you quickly to the decision maker, right. then it's going to be much more of an uphill climb, you know? But yeah, I think it's one of those things where, yeah, as you mentioned, you, you got to have thick skin. You can't worry about the rejection factor. You just got to plug on say, okay, well, this one didn't hurt. Right, Great. I'll go to the next one. I'll go to the next one, next one. And somebody, you know, and, and you're, you're, you know, basically your, your pitch is going to get better and better. The more you approach things, mm-hmm. you're going to know what kind of, Oh, this is the thing that seems to turn these people off really quickly. I mentioned the following and it's like eyes glazed over or they were like, Oh, okay, we're done here right it's like right. okay i, I got to now i know how to neg- navigate and negotiate that stuff better
0: mhm and even getting back to what you were saying like there's no there's no book that you're going to read or some video course that's going to teach you like you have to go through that pain to get better is is that a Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, 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 you know, if I'm going to use an analogy, like from my younger days, whatever, and if you're going to like a dance club or bar or something, and you're trying to, you know, uh, meet women there and, you know, uh, pick up women, whatever, um, you know, you can take the attitude of, they're probably going to reject, so I'm not going to approach them um, or I'm really nervous, whatever. You know, and and I went through sort of both stages. Where initially I was afraid to approach at all, right? And mm-hmm. then then I went on this trip, and it got my confidence level much better. And when I came back, it was kind of like I didn't care who I approached. Right? You know, it was like I don't care if they say no. Doesn't bother me at all. It really didn't bother me. It has to be organic. You can't just rationalize. Oh, it's not going to bother me. Like intellectually, you have to really kind of feel it. And it has to be legitimate. Mm, but yeah. it's kind of that same thing. Is but the thing is no no nothing risks, nothing gained. So if you go to the bar and you're sitting standing around just sipping at a drink for four hours and you haven't approached a single person, and then you go home and you're like, Oh, I didn't meet anybody again. Of course. You didn't even try. Right. Mm-hmm. So figure, okay, and maybe you start to figure out these are the you know, the signs to look for, you know, where I'm I'm gonna have a better chance than other, you know.
0: So yeah. now that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's like a meta like programming is a metaphor for life, getting better at uh developing software development.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you can go pick up women at bars, you know? I mean, yeah. That's, that's, uh,
0: that's awesome. So how, how have mentors played a role in your career growth? Cause you seem like you're more, uh, facilitating the, men- the mentor role, but at one time you were maybe a mentee, right?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, I, I think, wasn't really the first job at a school, frankly. I, I had somebody who was supposed to be my mentor and she got the, uh, like the Shanghai flu or something like that. And she was literally out for like three months. Like I'm okay. on the job trying to ramp up I'm in customer support for a database product mm-hmm. and next she know, she's gone. And I'm like on the phone with this guy from the Atlanta call center. And mm-hmm. he's asking me a question. I'm like, dude, I don't really know, man. I'm, I'm new to this. I've only been doing this a couple of weeks. And the person who's the expert, you know, is homesick. And he's like, well, I'm, too, I'm new too. And so it was the blind leading the blind. And we figured it out as we went. But then uh, a couple of jobs later, I worked for this boss who had worked for AT and T uh, or Bell Labs or something like that. And this dude was super sharp technically. And I remember at the time it was it was only me and this and this uh, and this woman you know a woman who uh, you know we we're, were the only developers and he hired on a bunch of other. It was like a small subsidiary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And. He was like, okay, I need you guys to program this. It was like sheer memory or something. And I'm like, that's like chapter 23. Like we're on chapter two. Mm -hmm. He wants to jump to chapter 23. And this guy led us along the way. I learned so much from that guy, you know? Um, And part of it was that he put certain demands on us, which forced us to grow. You know, he didn't just assume, okay, he was going to spoon feed us, right? Take that baby steps. He kind of threw us into the pool. Um, But he... Explain certain things. I mean, there was debugging techniques I learned from him. You know, you're not always maybe going to have a technical manager like that. He was also a pretty good just human manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't always get that combination, but I learned a lot from him. Um, and and sometimes what you're learning from manager isn't necessarily technical. I've had a lot of non technical managers. Sometimes okay. what you're learning is how to interact with other people, right? Or maybe you get put into a project lead situation, and you have to ha- exert some aspects of management it's not the full role of of a manager but there's definitely certain organizational things or um you know interrelationships with people and and if you have the manager who's handling that stuff really well you can just sort of model after that person right so it's not always just the technical realm yeah
0: that that's uh that's excellent like the more i just listen to you talk about these like you know there's there's definitely an aspect of the hard skills of learning the language, but like, could you argue it's, it's more of like a people business than people really realize?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that there is, there's going to be certain types of companies, engineering companies Mm -hmm. where they put a premium on those technical skills and, and you have to exceed whatever bar. Right, And that probably would happen in the interview process. So if you've never done C++, it's not on your resume anywhere, and you walk into the interview and they're like, well, where's your C++ skills? You're probably not right. getting hired. So most of the time in that vetting process, you probably would have been filtered out anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the time, once you're in the job, they've already established that you probably have the tech technical you know knowledge and acumen to handle it. So mm-hmm. after that, what's going to separate you is likely going to be the soft skills, right? And the old adage about it is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you from working in companies, a lot of times you'll have the old boys club. And, mm-hmm. it, and if you're not part of that, if you're not one of the favorite sons, you may not get promoted and you know and, and get better projects, right? Mm-hmm. There's always going to be that group, that, that that click that forms, right? And And if you're not part of that, you may not move along as quickly as the other people right yeah. and so what's really separating you at that point and it has nothing to do with your technical skills you may be better than everybody in the group but right they are effectively excluding you and favoring themselves and and especially if if management is tied up in that group so maybe it's it's like a camp counselor having his favorite campers right mm-hmm. you know and they get an extra dessert during lunchtime or something
2: right because
1: right? they're in good with the boss so to speak and right yeah that stuff matters way more than your technical skills and if if you're like a curmudgeon and you're sitting there you know in in your hoodie at work you know hunched over your terminal you know and you got do not disturb signs all over you you know if you're really super like a superman technically you will progress to a certain point but i can promise you there will be a ceiling Mm.
2: you
1: know um because people frankly won't want to work with you they'll tolerate you right that's the difference right Mm. it's like well, this guy's really good. He can get stuff done. So yeah, we will tolerate his attitude, you know, but mm-hmm. but shoot, if they find somebody anywhere close to you, it doesn't have to be at the same level. If you're like a 10 out of 10, they find the 8 out of 10, but the guy's like super nice and friendly, makes them laugh. Mm-hmm. That's what they'll figure out a way to get rid of the 10 out of 10 guy.
0: Right. Man, it, that,
1: human, it is still a human business.
0: Yeah, man. That's, uh, I, I'd say that's definitely one of the nuggets to take home from this interview. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. I was curious, uh, you had mentioned uh, in the pre-interview about how data science, there, there's basically unlimited or endless employment opportunities with Python's data stack or data science stack. Uh, why do you have that uh, perception?
1: I, I think it's because, especially with the internet of things, right, that, that we have all these appliances that are going to be gathering data. Somebody's got to be analyzing that data to mm-hmm. figure out where the profit is. Cause that's ultimately what it's about is how can we translate this into earning money off of people? So Mm -hmm. whether it's a company that's got, you know, uh, an appliance that is monitoring your usage, right? And they're like, Oh, well, I don't know. This person is, I mean, this, this may be kind of almost like a silly example, but just to give you an idea of something Mm -hmm. fairly mundane, you know, maybe it's your dishwasher and your dishwasher has got like, it's communicating back to the company, you know, it's Whirlpool or something like that. And it's communicating that these people do a ton of dishes. Mm. So they have to buy detergent. So maybe they make a deal with Colgate or somebody. It's mm-hmm. so like, here, we're going to identify the people that are using a ton of dishwasher detergent, right? Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure they're using your dishwasher detergent. And so you give them a discount or something like that.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and now these companies can leverage that data, that information. I mean, something is kind of mundane, as silly as that. Mm. Believe me, if somebody sees an opportunity there, they will act on it. And I think it's a wide open frontier. I think we're just hitting the literally tip of the iceberg on that stuff. So if you're somebody who can do it, companies are going to look for people that can crunch and munch the data, right? Slice and dice.
0: Crunch and munch. (laughs) Yeah, I'm
1: telling you, man, it's it's that, that's it, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's legit, man. So, and actually you bring up a good point there because we're at the tip of the iceberg here and it's going to be like a a really big trend, um, at, at least the way you see it. And I'm in full agreement with that. So, so since Python creates easier access to data science tools, do you think we will hit a point of like data science employment saturation or is is the abundance literally just so overwhelming?
1: I think the abundance is so overwhelming and and then the the thing is that as other countries begin to improve technologically,
2: mm-hmm.
1: these places that are so at the same time as, as you're getting people who are ramping up on skills, potentially being competition internationally, right? Mm-hmm. These markets, it, it's, it, there may be a lagging effect, right? So if if somebody's sitting in, you know, a second, third world country, right? Well, as they begin to get more affluence because they're working and, and competing in, in an industry where there's some, in an industry sector where there's a lot of money, to mm-hmm. around, they're obviously going to start accumulating, wealth and, and that's going to raise the country level too, where maybe third goes to second, second goes to first. And so at that point, now you've got a whole bunch of new customers, right? right? Because now they've caught up. Now it's no longer, you know, you have to reach out to a particular country to get an opportunity. Mm. That opportunity may be literally next door where it didn't exist before because enough money has been infused in that economy that now they're starting to catch up. It's like, Hey, we need technology here too. Mm. Um, so that, again, there may be a lag, there may be a a point, a temporary point where there is saturation, but I don't think the saturation will last. I don't think it'll persist.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I was curious just, um, I mean, there's just this vast abundance, but is there any like particularly like viable employment opportunities or like freelancing opportunities for data mining and analysis that kind of stand out from the, uh, herd? Like I think stuff.
1: the financial sector is always looking for this stuff, you know, okay. so like trading brokerage, you know, those type of things, they're, they're always crunching huge numbers. You know, that's where you get sort of big data, you know, mm-hmm. analyzing that stuff. Um, I do think that, you know, any sort of science engineering discipline mm-hmm. where they have to sift through mountains of data mm-hmm. and applies, and it could be even universities, right? And universities get grants. So it doesn't have to be free for a university. I mean, they may have some grant to, to go through, you may have some geology majors that are crunching numbers for an oil company mm-hmm. and, and they need to know, maybe they're trying to figure out well, where are we hitting the best payloads? You know, mm-hmm. how often we get in, um, you know, uh, we coming up empty when we're drilling, you know, we, where seems to be the, the best, you know, sort of almost a heat map type of situation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of them already have tools like that in place, but it's those type of applications where, and again, you know, it's, pretty common actually for companies to leverage universities because it's almost like cheap labor in a way. (laughs) But a lot of times there, there is, yeah. And there, but a lot of times there is a grant. So there may be money for that university to reach out to somebody, maybe to lead a team. Mm. It's made up of some students, but you're leading the team and you're getting paid, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you see any trends with like the problems, at least with your own experience, like businesses have a problem and that's the only way that, that you're, able to get paid basically is is because you add value by solving these problems so are you seeing any trends with like the types of problems i guess that you are solving or the problems that are being solved in this space
1: yeah i deal a lot with networking so um there are companies who need to monitor data usage Mm -hmm. right cable companies um you know pretty much anybody who's connecting with somebody at home right regardless of 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 you know, basically the details of that transfer data mm-hmm. so he needs to figure out if there's a subscription or something like that, what's the, where's the traffic going? Right. So they're analyzing that kind of data. How much traffic is flowing? You know, where's it flowing from, uh, you know, where's the subscription rates. So you may get 50 megabytes, you know, let's say mm-hmm. per day or something like that. Like you have a cap and they're going to monitor that. And they, they're also trying to figure out, well, you know, what's the utilization on our hardware,
2: hmm. you
1: know, do we have to you know, potentially invest in more hardware? You know, so maybe we have customers calling us all the time saying, Hey, my internet's super slow. Why is that? And then hmm. you end up digging into it and you find out, Oh shoot, you know what? Our hardware is just being overwhelmed. And then they want to be able to invest that capital right into expanding equipment, but they obviously don't want to do it unless they know there's a good reason behind it. And hmm. they want to do it with enough lead time to project because they know it's going to take maybe six months to get that stuff up and running. So they don't want to find out literally two days before, you know, the whole thing collapses, right? They want to know with enough lead time to say, hey, here's the projections, here's the trend. And based on that, we're going to basically hit a ceiling in like four to six months. Okay, we better initiate something now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So companies are, you know, always looking, you know, for, uh, you know, opportunities like that. Uh, and at least in that space, or like I said, to initiate stuff that, that make sure people are within whatever boundaries they pay for. So right. they want to know that if you've paid for 50 megabytes and you're using 70 every day, right? right. They have to throttle you down. And most mm. people don't realize that that actually happens, right? They're like, well, my internet's slow. What's happening? And you're thinking, well, it's a problem, you know, ah, it's just a stupid connection. No, it may not be the connection. It may actually be that they are intentionally throttling you down because you're exceeding some limit or as an aggregate within a community, you're exceeding a certain limit. And so Mm -hmm. they're managing it. It's almost like what power companies do when they do rolling brownouts. It's like, we don't want the network, the grid to be overwhelmed. So we're going to take proactive steps Hmm. to limit, right? And they'll do those things. So there's a lot of data crunching that's happening behind the scenes to make that possible.
0: Yeah. And I, I see now kind of why you're just like, there is no end to this. Like
1: it's,
0: (laughs) (laughs) you could just go so deep. So one, one question I have for you, you had mentioned that uh, a pretty cool open source project that uh, you like, uh, it's basic, it's not super sexy, but it helps you work with spreadsheets uh, or data sheet or Google's data sheets. Um, what is your experience with worksheets in the enterprise? Is it like complete mayhem or, uh, or yeah, What what's it's your experience? It's just
1: something I just started looking into fairly recently because I, okay. I work on a project where I deal with Python and spreadsheets actually quite a bit. Uh, okay. Awesome. What appealed to me about that in particular was that, um, it, and I forget where I actually heard this, but um, you know, uh, it was maybe an interview somewhere, but they were talking about how you could, you could, ramp up fairly quickly. Like, let's say you're trying to work for a company and maybe your program skills are not really that strong yet, but mm-hmm. you can actually formulate a solution using sort of prepackaged, um, you know, uh, like off the shelf stuff. Right? right. So you could use like Google sheets. And so if you have a fairly easy way to interact with that, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, the company has access to Google sheets. You don't have to, you know, this way it's, it's something that's kind of shared. It's accessible to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that's actually built just right out of the box for that. So it takes a minimal investment on your part to maybe deliver a solution that helps them. Mm-hmm. And The customer, frankly, is like I said before, they generally don't care how you do it. They don't care, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. They just care that a thing works. Right. So to that end, well, shoot, if you can figure out how to get it to work with mostly off the shelf kind of stuff, open source stuff, then that you don't have to build yourself then you now have gained back a huge chunk of time, right? Yeah. That thing now is an hour to two hours of work. it would have taken two weeks? Man, that's mm-hmm. a huge win, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like the big nugget I got out of that is uh, like, don't be religious about your tools that you use to solve problems. Like there's a very good chance that a Google, she- Google Sheets integration with something uh, makes, makes you a rock star in the office and it took you maybe like a weekend or something to crank
1: out. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. Uh, like I said, the, the people above you, so your peers will potentially do things like code reviews. So they may be privy. But frankly, even in that case, mm-hmm. most of the time, the other people you're working with are so friggin' busy themselves. Yeah, they don't really have time to. I think that's the other thing that happens. You know, maybe this is uh, you know uh, another uh, offshoot of kind of the, the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, somebody's going to look at my code and be like, this guy's an idiot, man. It's like, <laughs> well, how did he code this thing? Like, this is junk, mm-hmm. right? And and you're like, but maybe it works. But right. you're afraid that especially we get a lot of coding snobs, right? I think that I went to a school with quite a few of them, right? Mm-hmm. I went to an engineering school and it's like, oh, you solved it that way. So didn't you use, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or something to solve? And it's like, what? And it's like they feel really good about themselves because they came up with some elegant or really sort of obscure solution, right? Some some mm-hmm. like Byzantine solution, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the thing is, like I said, it, how you solve it doesn't matter. As long as you do it within, you meet the deadline, do it without, without the timeframe you're allocated, and it works, it's not buggy, it's quality, and it works maybe it performance scale, mm-hmm. then nobody really cares. But right. there's always that element where you're like, well, but if somebody looks at that, are they gonna, how are they gonna judge it, right? And most of the time, I guess what I'm saying is they don't have the time to do it. And they're right. thinking the same thing you're thinking. Right. Right. So <laughs> yeah. that's why to me, you know, um, if, you know, uh, if you can figure out a way to save time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and do it, you know, uh, the only thing you have to wor- you know, worry about usually in situations like that, if you're dealing with open source is just check the licensing. Right. Right. Make sure it is truly a real open license. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? Uh, because that's if you're working for a company, they have le- legalities to deal with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that library is uh, supported by Squarespace, which I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, so I guess you could bet your britches that that thing's not going anywhere. I didn't dig into the licensing, but uh, it seems like a pretty cool tool to have in your, or a cool arrow to have in your quiver.
1: So. Yeah, 100%. That's the thing mm-hmm. is that the more stuff, to, to your point, more arrows in the quiver. More targets you can hit, so um, you know. And there's always the argument about the breadth versus the depth, mm. right? And so, should know a little bit about jack of all trades, know a little bit about JavaScript, a little bit about Python, a little bit about Java, etc. Is that going to help you more um, to some degree? But it's it's probably going to be limited on the complexity of the problem. So if you're dealing with, and and again, you know, going back to the original, like we were talking about the platforms, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a limited number of those really kind of simple things. And maybe that's a good place to start, but generally you are frankly better off, right? Kind of picking something and diving deeper into it
2: Mm.
1: because that's where the money really starts. You know, that's where you look at the hourly rate and it shoots way up because you have some specialty, You, you know, it takes a little bit of work to identify what that is. Right. right, because you could bet, you could proverb, you know, bet on proverbially the wrong horse. Right, you you could think, Oh, here's this thing that looks really hot, and you mm. you sink time into it, and you start trying to mentor on it, and then the thing suddenly disappears. It was kind of flavor of the month, and right. that's going to be a risk that you have to take. Um, you could deal with something more established, but obviously, the more established it is, probably the more people know it.
0: Mm. So yeah,
1: you, you got to balance that, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's excellent. So I had I had some more questions here. I didn't know how we we're doing on time for you. Um,
1: I actually haven't checked. I have no idea. Uh, we've I'm burned a up. Right yeah, now. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay.
0: Yeah, because I, I kind of wanted to transition into kind of kind of away from what we were talking about into kind of the like social side of things and kind of your philosophy on okay. uh, on on how to integrate like a like a holistic approach to programming. Cause it's not all about like, according to your, uh, pre-interview, like it, there, there's just so many other components. Like for example, um, I had a question here, how should a developer approach increasing social interaction in their, in their life?
1: Okay. Um, well, I do think that coaching and mentoring is good because you're going to be dealing with people. Mm-hmm. So it's a good way to, if you have any sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, let's say um, trepidation about dealing with people, you know, and and some developers frankly do. I mean, there's engineering tends to, you know, these type of disciplines tend to maybe attract more people that have issues with interpersonal stuff, right. Mm -hmm. That have more to overcome, right. They're not as comfortable in those social settings. Mm -hmm. That's a good way. You're doing one-on-one, you're dealing with somebody online. A lot of times it may even be audio, right. So it's, it's basically like a phone call and work your way through that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And come to grips with where you're uncomfortable, right? And then you can maybe start exposing yourself to to, situations where there's more people involved, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think to go back to the early point is to understand that the people, like, so let's say you're going to a company and you're the new guy and you're like trying to ramp up. Well, keep in mind, they were the new guy at one point too. And -hmm. they probably are going through the same stuff in their head, you know, went through that same stuff that's going through your head at that time. Right. Right. They were nervous about stuff. They're trying to prove themselves. Right. And, and give yourself permission to maybe initially be uncomfortable for things to be a little bit rough and realizing that within probably a few months, you know, you'll be seamless, right. It'll just, it'll be like you've been working there for five years. Right. Mm. Um, And even regarding things like public speaking, right. Uh, You can do whether it's something like Toastmasters, but you can just get out there and figure that the first few times, man, I'm, I'm going to drench my clothing with sweat, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and like if they could get inside my brain, you know, <laughs> they'd, they'd see that I was scared. You know what, listen, right? But mm-hmm. get out there and take the first few blows. You'll get more and more comfortable. And, mm-hmm. and then you'll realize that most people are pretty friendly, actually. You know? Right. There's always going to be some critics and stuff. But, you know, uh, and if they've got something constructive off, for fine. You know, mm-hmm. take that and try it but otherwise you kind of filter out that noise and there'll be a lot of people kind of supporting you as you go. And you know, but if you don't put yourself in those situations, you won't le- learn how to deal with it. No book is going to tell you, I don't care what you read. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some good books that can give you ideas of things to try, but mm-hmm. if you actually get out there and try those things. You won't know how well they work. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. That's, that's excellent. I love that. As far as like handling stress as a software developer, um, How, how has like handling the stress for you changed as you have kind of integrated spirituality more with your, with your daily life?
1: Oh, it's changed dramatically, especially since I was much younger. Right. Um, I think there's a tendency in a lot of companies uh, to have the sky is falling, right? Reaction to any minor little apparent crisis, perceived crisis. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh my God, we got the deadline coming up in two days. The customer blah, blah, blah. and everybody literally is like running around chicken without a head. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: just, everybody's in complete panic mode. Now if you're in an ER and there's a guy with a gunshot wound laying on the table and you're a doctor or nurse, that's a situation. You obviously do not want to be in panic. You want to be calm, but that's a situation mm-hmm. that deserves that kind of urgency and um, and, and level of emotional kind of reaction, even though obviously you want to be as, as, as sort of dispassionate as you can in the moment so you can save the guy. Right. Mm. But a similar thing. So you're working for is to step back and say, uh, nobody's dying because of this. Like, like, hold on. So you're watching, it's almost like you have to pull back and I've done this and become the observer. And you're watching all these people running around helter skelter right in complete panic. And it's almost like, Why? Mm. Why is everybody running around like really good? Let's take a step back. Okay, what's the worst case scenario? Mm-hmm. Uh, I get fired. That's literally it. Now, that obviously right. not a good situation, but you can land on your feet if you have to, mm-hmm. right? It's most likely going to be transient, right? Temporary thing. But I can tell you that if you react to every one of those situations with that level of this kind of frenetic, chaotic, you know, emotional kind of turmoil, then. Eventually, it will take its toll on you, right? Mm-hmm. The company you may have moved on. Companies, right? They may have let you go. Whatever, um, won't mean anything to them. But eventually, all of those battles that you've been fighting—that you've that, where there's been an overreaction—and most, ninety percent of the time, it is definitely an overreaction—that's mm-hmm. um, eventually going to take its toll. You know, to process that that amount of stress, especially if you know of a way to kind of alleviate some of it, right? So. Um, And that's a tough thing to to learn because Mm -hmm. you're kind of in fear mode and you're reacting and you're also sometimes absorbing the emotions that are coming your way. So if your boss approaches you in like a panic mode or product management or something, oh my God, we got to deliver this to the customer. You know, this is not working. We got it. It is a lot tougher to say, well, wait a second, I'm putting a barrier here and I am not going to reflect. I'm not going to do a mirroring approach and take on their energy. I'm Hmm. basically going to sit there and say, be as zen-like as possible. Absorb the information, but not the emotion, Hmm. right? So take, you know, whatever they're communicating, filter out the emotional side of it. Just take the, you know, okay, customer needs this, this, and that. They need A, B, and C. That's what I took out of the conversation. Not that this person is, you know, is panicked. Hmm. Because you can't effectively think well when you're panicked, So that's the funny thing too, is developers are sitting there and, and you're watching the clock's like, Oh my God, I got to get this thing done the next hour. Well, the more you panic, the less effective you will be. I promise you.
2: Mm.
0: Man, that's, that's so wild. Like how, uh, you know, somebody, I mean, even myself, like I have a tendency to just like, Oh, you want to like, just get all wild. Like, let's just get all wild, you know, but like the, the correct response is just a, uh, just um, uh, in, in your words is absorb the information and not the emotion. And I mean, how do you, how do you adopt that mentality? I mean, cause sometimes I have like a short fuse, you know, like I don't, I don't want to mess with like people that are trying to make my life difficult, you know? So like, how do you, how do you navigate that?
1: It, it's, it is, it's, it's harder. I, I think in general in society is much easier to deal with things on sort of a physical level right? Mm. There's something you can take to address something or something you can do, you can exercise, whatever. It's way harder to work on, on the stuff upstairs, you know, yeah. up here, right. Or, or in here in the heart, right? Mm. That stuff is not necessarily tangible. Um, so it's this kind of ephemeral stuff. And it's like, well, we're not really taught how to deal with that, those type of things. Right. And so it's a lot tougher to get, you know, that's really where you get sort of the soft skills is, is to be in almost like the meditative state where you do not get disturbed by the chaos around you. So if you can be that eye in the storm, that calm area in the storm, frankly, it sets you apart. So if right. you really want to set yourself apart in a company, when you're the person, when the building's on fire and everybody's running hell to skelter, they can't find the exit because they're in total panic mode. And yeah. you're like, hey guys, uh, here, I grabbed a flashlight. Uh, here's some stuff, put it around your mouth, you know, wet cloth so you're not breathing smoke. And, and you're like totally calm. Like literally there's like beams falling around you. And it's right. like, hey, over here, I see where the smoke's at, you know, so let's head this other direction, let's stay close to the floor, there's mm-hmm. the door, and they lead you out. Well, you're the hero then. So if yeah. you do that same type of mentality when everybody else is kind of losing their cool and you're sitting there very calm, mm. so you come up with a solution while they're all running around like crazy, right? And you come out looking pretty, pretty darn good, you know? when things like that happen, but it's not easy. I, 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 I'm not going to kid you. It's, it's hard. It takes a long time. And I still fall into that trap knowing better half the time. Mm. There's times I still fall into that trap where I still let that emotion get me going, you know, that sort of inertia. And then Mm. it's a lot harder to calm down. But if you, like I said, if you kind of take that pause point and almost like as you're listening to him say, okay, you know, yeah, I see what's going on here. I'm not, I'm not getting entangled in this, you know? Mm. Yeah.
0: That's man, that's such freaking gold right there. I'm, <laughs> I'm really enjoying this conversation, Brett. Yeah, thanks. Me too. Um, yeah, the so you you have a background in nutrition, and I was wondering, like, uh, you know, nutrition is important in general, but you know, it's it's super important for software developers, and I was wondering if you could kind of uh, just talk about that a little bit, like why should a de- why should you know? Why is uh, you know pizza and Rockstar not like a right, right. takeout approach? But yeah, just talk about nutrition and software developers and kind of how that is. yeah,
2: a- and, and
1: obviously it applies to, to, to pretty much everybody you mm-hmm. know outside of the software developers, but in particular anybody and, and this certainly includes software developers. anybody that is effectively sitting for a living, and, and this is where things like standing desks are really good, or chairs mm-hmm. where you lean against your knees and stuff like that. I forget what they're called. Right, so anywhere where you're sitting for a living for long periods of time, um, studies have shown that it's like as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes.
2: Hmm.
1: Like it is really bad for your health. And, and here's the kicker that they found in further studies. You can sit there and go out for a jog or bicycle you know, 10 miles and it does not neutralize the effects of the sitting. I had a guy I worked with who I remember he was kind of, bummed. he walked past my queue and he was kind of bummed. I was like, hey, Brad, what's up, man? He goes, oh, I just read this article, and he explained what it was. You know, that's how I learned about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's like, I'm sitting there, I'm running, I'm biking every day, and yet it's telling me it's not going to count to the effects of me sitting all the time. Now, what they la- the good news is what they later found out is if you stand, like once every like 10 or 20 minutes or something like that, I forget what it was, but I think it might have been once, so, for like no more than 30 seconds a minute, just the act of standing does more to counter, sitting than anything else so the reason why nutrition is particularly important for people who basically sit for a living is you are already you know dealing with something that is you know potentially harmful to your overall health
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and and you're doing it on a daily basis so you need to make sure that the last thing you want to do is is taking more assaults against your health And, and what i tell you from personal experience is you lose your health nothing else frankly matters
2: Mm.
1: right it becomes literally your whole existence you know it's you don't care about almost anything else it's just how do i get well that's the only thing that ends up mattering, right so it's the old adage about an ounce of prevention right so you know pay attention to those things like that it's not that you have to be super strict monk-like right but Mm. you certain things that if you can avoid you know introduce more sort of good nutrition right? Uh, take maybe certain supplements, things like that, herbs, you know, that can help balance things out and at least create a pretty strong foundation. Then you can mm-hmm. start to counter the, uh, you know, the deleterious effects of, of the position or the job itself. Right. Yeah. Plus the stress factor, right. when you're being stressed by deadlines and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And it probably helps with like your cognitive abilities and, and being able to kind of be sharp for like eight hours a day or more type thing.
1: Yeah, I mean if you uh, 100% that's great then. Um because if you're getting fatigued, you know, if you can't think straight, um mm-hmm. maybe you're not sleeping well, maybe you're not eating well and, and 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 frankly like if I was to show people what your blood vessels look like like after eating a cheeseburger, you know. And and I'm not this is not a judgment thing, but just a right. you know a scientific right that you would literally see fat running through your blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And fat is running through your blood vessels messages don't get carried as quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So literally, you will be thinking slower, right? Based on potentially what you eat, you may even notice that sometimes where, boy, I don't think that well after maybe certain meals, like I feel kind of sluggish, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that, it, you know, uh, you know, sort of in, in um, oriental medicine, you know, they look at, at the stomach, you know, the digestion as the fire, the engine, and so that consumes a lot of your resource. So you have like this huge meal, especially something that's difficult to digest. Mm-hmm. Your body is literally sending a lot of resources, blood, et cetera, into that region to tackle the food because it's, it, it needs that other than to keep your heart going, your brain going right. Everything else it can, it's going to muster that, mm-hmm. which means it's going to say, well, I need, I don't need hundred percent utilization up in the brain to, to function. I need right. 50% because I got to take the other 50% and throw it down to the stomach. So you literally will not be thinking as well if you're not paying attention to little things, you know, in, in nutrition.
0: Yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense. I, I was curious, what, what does your morning routine look like? Do you have kind of a standard way of approaching that?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, uh, usually I wake up. That's the first thing, right? Because I'm always operating in a dream or in the matrix or something, right? But... Um, uh, one of the things you would ask me like in the pre interview non-negotiable and the thing that I try to hold, uh, you know, hold to every single morning as I do a little like yoga stretching routine helps me mm-hmm. wake me up because I don't drink coffee, right? Okay. I, I never have. So I use that to kind of wake me up, keep me limber, right? It, it actually has helped. I used to have some lower back problems. I knock on wood, very rarely have them anymore. Mm-hmm. So and it's a, like a 15 minute return. So it's not like, you know, I'm not sitting there working out for three hours before I start. So it's a minimal kind of commitment, but it has a
2: big payoff. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Uh, what advice do you have for a developer that has their spidey senses uh, protesting against like taking a job?
1: Yeah, I, I, I addressed that. Yeah. It's funny. I even mentioned this in, in a post I did on Instagram last night. Walk away, mm-hmm. walk away, man, trust your intuition, trust your gut. If your gut is telling you that a position, is a company is not right, it could be, frankly, as little as something really sort of minor or seemingly minor, like how the the person that's interviewing you, particularly if it's going to be your manager, Mm -hmm. how they shake your hand. Right? You can tell Mm -hmm. a lot sometimes just simply from that. Um, But there's, in that first few minutes of interaction, you'll feel, am I comfortable with this person? It doesn't mm. feel like like it's taking tremendous effort to communicate with this guy, it's like or woman, right? It's it's like boy, you know the, the whole conversation is just really not flowing, right? Or they're asking me to do something on the whiteboard, but I really can't understand what the heck they're asking, right? right. Um, th- there's signs that you can pick up, or you look around the office. You know, I, I think I told the story about how um, uh, I remember going to an interview early, and I was sitting in the in the waiting area, and um, and I got there early on purpose. And I watched the interaction amongst the employees, right? So it was almost like a little experiment and to see how they interacted with each other. You know, were Mm -hmm. they friendly to each other? Were people walking around kind of casual, you know? Or were they walking around like with super intensity and and not talking to anybody, really serious? Uh, You know, was the receptionist nice? I mean, there's little things you can kind of pick out. I I, I remember (laughs) walking, opening the door to, this is so many years ago, to Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. literally opened the front door, right. To go into the office area. I look took one look around, not, this is not for me. Hmm. Like in that split, it was like that quick within like four seconds, five seconds. Boom. No, not for me. I just knew. Yeah. Um, now I, 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 have a pretty well honed intuition. Um, but it's there for everybody. Everybody can tap into that, into right. the, the so spidey sense. And if you're getting sort of knots in your stomach from something, walk away. Do not rationalize. The worst thing you can do is walk out of there and like, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, that guy was okay. Yeah, the company's not so bad because they're paying and I kind of need a job. And and before you know it, you're going to rationalize and and you're going to basically throw away, discard whatever sort of emotional hints you were getting at the time.
2: Mm. You
1: know, because again, this gets back to the hard versus soft skills. We trust the stuff we can see. See and touch. So the mind, heart stuff, we can't see or touch. We don't trust as much as the physical stuff. Same thing is I'm looking at the money they're offering. I'm looking at the potential, like the skills, what I can learn. Mm -hmm. That seems great to me. And next thing you know, you're on the job and three, four months in, you're miserable. Right? Right. You can't wait to get out of there. You're just figuring, how can I get these people and making my life miserable? And part of the problem with that too is, and I've seen this at many, many jobs, you'd be surprised at how many people will endure. And, and believe me, I've been guilty of it as to too, um at times, how many times people will endure being miserable like that for way longer than they should. So mm-hmm. maybe they should get out at the six month point. It's like, boy, I've given this a chance. This is not working out. I can't stand every morning. I just want to do something. I want to just stay in bed. I don't want right. to go to work, but they'll stay there for three years. Boy, mm-hmm. no. I, I remember working at one company where, it, it, where the severance package was pretty good. It was like a month of pay for every two months you would work, right? So it was a pretty good deal.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: these guys had been there 15 years or something. So they were getting a substantial amount of, hey, leave the job. And and they sat there and they waited for that severance, basically. They didn't leave. I, I left voluntarily. I'm like, mm-hmm. screw the severance. You guys are going to be, so you guys are going to stay here to be miserable for as good as it is, seven, eight months, a year of severance. Yeah, because right. then we can just hang out. Maybe we can double dip whatever. And it's like, yeah, but, but what about the time you've given up? You just mm-hmm. gave up how many months, years of your life being unhappy, right? right. So you can get some finite temporary financial gain. That's where to me it made no sense. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm out of here. I'm not waiting for the X to drop on me. You know, it made mm-hmm. no sense to me. You, you're given a certain amount of finite life and to throw any of that away, it doesn't make sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And just if you truly do have an abundance mindset, then, a scenario like that wouldn't bug you at all because you would know that like there's no, need, there's no need to be like, uh, not, not happy with your job because guaranteed there's something else better out there for you. So why would you subject yourself to that?
1: That's, That's a great point. That's excellent advice. Yeah. I
0: agree. Some, Sometimes it helps to be a backseat driver in these conversations. Like I get to kind of yeah. pick up on all the, but yeah, yeah no, it's great, man. <laughs> so, uh, how, how should a developer navigate the ineptitude of management? And is that different for like a junior versus a senior developer? Wow.
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely a loaded question, man. That's um, <laughs> you what I found. How you want. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So what I found in the, in the software industry, I'd say it's happened enough that, that, that I, I'm pretty, pretty confident the pattern here has emerged. Mm-hmm. And that is that the general um, career path for most of these managers is they started out in the technical domain right? They were a programmer, a coded developer, whatever. Okay. And they were pretty good at it. You know, maybe not the best even, but good at it. And they were maybe good at kind of infiltrating, getting friendly with the, the managers, you know, above them, the management above them, right? And so promotion time comes around. It might be three years down the road and management says, hey, you know, Doug over here, I think he'd make a great manager because he's a really good developer. You got to promote him. And and maybe you've hit possibly the high, the highest point in the technical ladder. And there's really nowhere else to go mm-hmm. oh, This transition to management. And, and there's this fallacy that the skills translate that it, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, sort of derogatory to management really. And I know people have issues with management and maybe, you know, bias like, like a used car salesman. Right. <laughs> but you know, the reality is, is that especially if you ever have the opportunity to work for somebody who is a really good manager, you will see that there are a whole separate set of skills that people can be good managers, really good managers. And what they do differs from the the general manager population. But thinking that somebody who's really good at Python is just automatically going to be a great manager is, I mean, that's silliness, right? Mm -hmm. That makes no sense. But this is what I've seen at many, many companies. This is by far
2: Hmm.
1: what ends up happening. So now you've transitioned that person who maybe was really good technically into a management role. They really don't know what they're doing as manage, management people. They don't interact well with others, right? So, you know, that to me is part of the issue, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's changing anytime soon. I mean, all these years, I haven't really seen a change. I, I see the same pattern still, even you know, uh, current time. So, um, you know, that's that's why, uh, you know, if um, uh, if let's say you're if you're a junior developer, right? Um, you're going to have to be obviously more careful about things because you haven't built up kind of that cachet, that reputation where you can kind of challenge things. Mm-hmm. If you're a senior developer, you've proven your worth, right? Um, you you have more to kind of lean against to to potentially defend or or interject in your opinion, right? You're mm-hmm. more, they're more willing generally to listen. You've kind of earned that, so you can approach things a little bit differently. But I think you have to figure out are you dealing seriously with somebody who truly is inept, right? Whether they're inept as a person, a manager, technically, whatever. I mean, they could be inept in different ways, right? They may be strong in certain ways. Mm. Um, but if, if you have to kind of assess, you know, what is this person like? Are they just somebody who does not get along with people? They're just sort of an ogre in the office and maybe it's a power trip, and right? And they just want to make sort of people miserable. It seems that way, yeah. you know? That person is not the same as somebody who's a halfway decent person, but just maybe doesn't have the technical background and they have trouble understanding what you're trying to tell them. So Mm -hmm. then it becomes a communication issue in terms of, I've got this kind of hairy kind of technical thing. I'm trying to explain to the manager why I need like three weeks for it to work and what it's going to deliver. Right. So the manager is a really good person. Like they're like, hey, they treat you well, but maybe they don't have the technical grasp. And so, okay, how can I distill what I have to out of, you know, what the objectives are, translate mm-hmm. that so they can understand it, right? So you can get potential friction because you're sitting there, like you feel like you're banging your head against the wall because the person's not understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus maybe who, somebody who, maybe they're super technically savvy, but they make unrealistic demands, right? So like, I need that done tomorrow or jump off what you're doing and, and finish this thing instead for tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. you're like, wait a second, wait, you know, we have this party, we promised the customer, now you want me to jump off of this? Like, maybe they're not looking at the greater picture. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You could even have the inverse. They may be aware of the greater picture. They're asking to do something that to you makes no sense.
2: Mm
1: They are aware of the, because they're aware of the greater direction, what they're asking actually does make sense. So sometimes somebody who maybe appears inept is actually not inept. It's just, they've done a poor job of communicating the reasons behind things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes managers don't like to give that information out. They don't think to give the information out. It definitely helps. Right. So, you know, you know, that's where the junior, senior, yeah, you may challenge it slightly and say, well, you know, there is this other stuff um, that you know I've been tasked with. You know, where's the priority? How do you want to handle it? So that's mm-hmm. where you want to throw it back at the manager and say, I've got these three things to work on. Which one do you want me to do first? Which right. is the most important. Put it back in their lap. Let them direct you to what you want they want you to do. Um Yeah,
2: but it, it,
1: yeah you, you gotta you gotta kind of feel out those situations, unfortunately. It's hard to, you know, because everybody's gonna have a little bit different. You also don't know, frankly, has somebody had a bad day. Right. Maybe they had a, you know, a fight with the spouse. Now mm-hmm. they come into work, they're in a bad mood, and they're treating you like crap. There's nothing mm. to do with you. Right. Right? but you're sitting there and you you go back to your, you kind of slumped down at your desk and you're like, Oh man, I just got, you know, right. But that's where, what we're saying before when you mentioned about thick skin, you have to say, well, wait a second, what's the real issue here? Did I do anything? Or right. if you're like, no, I didn't do anything. Then realize the problem's probably with them.
0: Mm-hmm. And then absorb and absorb the information and don't react. And then yeah. it all, it also sounds like, uh, there's, there's a component of like, do you have an environment where you can have an exchange with someone without heads rolling? So if that's yeah. not the case, maybe it is an environment you need to, uh, remove yourself from like communication. Uh, it's just a reoccurring theme that I'm picking up on here. Like you, you need to have those channels open, whether or not it's with your clients, with your, with your boss. Like, yeah, it just makes, it makes so much sense what you're saying there. I, yeah, the, really... the, the,
1: the last thing yeah that's great Ben summarizing it like that because the, the last thing you want to do is for you to withhold pertinent information mm-hmm. right maybe you're concerned about approaching the manager I, I mean I, I've been in situations where you have to deliver kind of the bad news that you're not going to make a deadline the team's not going to make it you come mm-hmm. across something maybe it's a new requirement the customer threw in nobody realized or part of the documentation nobody bothered to read or something and then all of a sudden you're you're Two, three days in, you know, it's supposed to be delivered two weeks later. And you're like, oh, crap, we're not making it. Like, there's just no way to make it. Maybe right. things are not ready. Maybe you're, there's certain prerequisites that have to be in place and they're not yet. And it's right. like everything's trying to converge in one moment. That's where the the earlier you can tell them that as uncomfortable as that conversation is, is going to be, and it right. will be, they're not going to be happy. We're not delivering good news. But if you do that early enough where they can react to it, maybe they're like, oh, you know what? John over there just freed up from that project. Would it help you if I threw John at it?
2: you know, mm-hmm.
1: It's like, yeah, yeah, that would really help because maybe he has front-end experience I don't have. And yeah, that's a huge win. And okay, maybe we now can make the deadline. But if you wait, things do run next Friday, and you wait till Thursday, you're like, uh, we ain't making it. And then you walk into the manager's office telling him, uh, you know, tomorrow we're supposed to be ready. I don't think that's happening. Mm. <laughs> you know? Maybe you've got a full suit of armor on when you go in to deliver <laughs> that message, you know? But, man, that's where, yeah, you want to kind of deliver the message and run the other direction because you're going to get major heat. And now you've put them in a horrendous position of they can't even react. Right. They can't help you. It's too late. So mm. you're sitting like just praying that the situation is going to work out. It's like cross your fingers. I'll get there, I'll get there. And then all of a sudden Thursday it's like, oh, crap, I'm not going to make it. Right. Yeah, no, no, it's better. Take the lumps early. Believe
2: me.
0: Yeah, oh, I, I love that. Uh, so if you were talking to the younger Brett, you would tell him, don't resist structure or organization. It, uh, it is not the enemy. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? And that, and then that is like the last like heavy okay. hitting question okay. I have for you here.
1: Thanks. It? Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. I am sort of Mr. Disorganized to some degree, mister absent Absinthe-Minded Professor, right? I, I write down stuff on sticky notes or napkins or whatever, and I keep a lot of stuff in my head. Um, I, I think because I'm a creative person and <laughs> I do not like to be constrained. So I – early on looked at that organization as constraint. They are trying to constrict me. I'm trying to be the free spirit here. Um, to the point where I think I've mentioned this when we were in the class together, right? That I had a boss who handed us all organizers, these nice little notebooks with calendars and notes. And it was really nice. She's, and she's, I think she bought it out of her own pocket. And mm-hmm. came into my office one day. She goes, oh my God, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I filled up my organizer. I have no room. And I turned around behind me and I handed her the box with the organizer in it. And she opened, she goes, she looks at and she goes, you never, open, you never, I said, no, <laughs> never used it, never even cracked it open. Right. So yeah, she kind of looked at me a little funny. She was like, okay, thanks. But I resisted it to that level. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. Now, I later learned in life that some of these processes, some of the structure that's put into place actually makes you more efficient. So you don't have to resist it. You don't want it to become so burdensome. And I've had discussions with managers where. You want the process, but you don't want to have process for the sake of process. I've worked at companies where you had to write a design spec on how you were going to go to the bathroom. Okay. Like, Mm -hmm. like you, you know, meetings about what the next meeting is going to be. I mean, it's a ridiculous amount of just noise, wasted time. Um, Mm -hmm. That stuff. Yeah. You know, you want to, you want to be on guard for stuff like that. If it's done the right way, where it's enough structure that, I mean, even silly things like, okay, you've got maybe a ticketing system and you're logging your work. Maybe it's even where other people can see it, right? Well, now you're giving some visibility into your work process. So maybe there's less interruptions because people kind of see what you're up to. It's like, oh, okay. I don't have to bother them because I know they're logging their stuff daily. And then the other thing is, all of a sudden a manager comes in one day, and I've had this happen. Stop what you're doing. Uh, that's not as important as the thing I need you to do. Now you Mm -hmm. jump off and maybe six weeks, and I've literally had this happen, it's like six weeks or longer, you now have to go back to it. And you're like, what the heck was I doing? Like look at the code, you don't even remember what the heck you were working on. Mm -hmm. And my bacon was basically saved by looking at my notes and then saying, that's what I was doing. I I can't tell you that happened to me multiple times where I looked back and I kept copious notes and I was Mm -hmm. able to refer to those I'm like, okay, so now the context switch, the interruption, much less pain to that.
0: Yeah. And that's the big penalty to uh, multitasking basically is that context switch. So don't fight the, don't fight the structure, just take good notes and, yeah. and uh, adapt a lot easier. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing all no. that. So I have, I have a couple of kind of like wind down questions here and sure. one of them actually might be kind of heavy hitting. So maybe I'll just I'll hit you with this. And then it, it's all downhill from here. Okay. So what is the best piece of advice you have ever received?
1: Wow. Okay. That's a, uh, that's a heavy, you hmm. know, I kind of lied. Yeah, that's okay. Um, well, I, I think it's a couple of things. Um, okay. I would say one thing, and this goes to something we discussed, uh, Wayne Dyer talked about don't sweat the small stuff. Okay. Uh, I think that's a huge one. Uh, the first thing that actually occurred to me was a conversation I had with uh, my uh, friend's father, who, when I was, I was I had had the ability to graduate like a half a year early, and he's like, "Dude, you're gonna be working for the next 40, 50 years. Why would you want to start that any sooner?" I was like, "Oh, yeah, you know." He's like, "Go out, have a good time." I'm like, "Okay," and I did, right. you know. So yeah. that was great advice, right? Um, you know, uh, but it, you know, the not sweat the small stuff. That's big. Cause we talked about the stress and things like that and right. how to react in those situations because then like that's understanding when you're, when, when you're faced with like this dilemma, right. And you're thinking end of the world type of thing, try to project yourself into the future, you know, a year two years down the road and think, okay, if I was me two years from now, am I even going to remember what this is? Right. And if you sit there, if the answer is no, it's not even going to be on the radar then it's probably not that important. It may be important kind of in the moment, but but put it in its proper perspective. Mm-hmm. Know, versus if it's something where it's like, yes, this, this is going to be something that's going to impact two years down the road, it's still going to bother me. Then yeah. you know it's raised to that threshold that it's going to require that additional effort and attention, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, that That is awesome. Might even be part of the title of this podcast.
2: Okay. <laughs> uh, okay,
0: so, uh, I, did you ever catch the video game bug at all?
1: Uh, big time, man. If you, if you talk yeah. about a regret, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a regret, man, because I got into computers with games. I mean, okay. very Word. early on, I won't even mention platforms and things like that. Um, you know, cause that'll really, uh, really, really, uh, you know, uh, reveal my age here. Right. But the, um, you know, I had an opportunity Uh, maybe I was four or five years into working. Uh, Mm -hmm. My aunt was working for a bank at the time and they had lots of clients. And one of the clients was a small video game company. And she said to me, she was, you love to write, you used to do game. You know, I can get you an interview. I think I can get you a job at this place. And I panicked because I was really good about writing the logic, but I came from, you know, sort of almost pre graphics type stuff. And I was Mm -hmm. never good with that. I was, I didn't have the patience to put all the little pixels together and move things okay. animation. I'm not good with any of that stuff. I'm challenged by drawing stick figures. <laughs> right. So I panicked. I'm like, Oh my God, in video game, you got to do like all that math and you got to do the graphics. I can't mm-hmm. do any of that. So I didn't even try. And, and years later I think back and I'm like, God, I would have been maybe on the ground floor. Like I could have been the chairman of EA or something. Right. But I'd right. Done that, right. And uh, because this is no joke. I, literally had like the idea for madden before Madden, right based on a game i had played as a kid uh, probably when i was like 15 16 something like that i can't remember but i had played a game and i thought wow if i could put this game on the computer like kind mm-hmm. of simulate and had to do with like drawing plays and stuff it's like a really simplistic game but i was like if i could put that on the computer this would be wild and so mm-hmm. and some years later, it was even before Madden, but the little X's and O's going around the screen and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then eventually, yeah, you had Madden. And I remember thinking, I was like, shoot, yeah, that, like, had I been at a video company, I I could have done that. Right. Um, and, and I think it, I think back then it was, it was a, a much more kind of creative a place to be because mm-hmm. the companies were smaller. You had this wide frontier ahead of you. You could pretty much do anything, right? Right. You fast forward today, because I literally had somebody ask me on Instagram a question. It's like, oh, I want to be a hero. I want to go from zero to hero. I want to be a game developer. And I, I'm like, okay, pump the brakes a little bit. It's great to have the enthusiasm, the passion. But mm-hmm. let me, because at one point when I was laid off, I actually did apply to a game company. I'm like, look, I'm going to have this regret. I got to at least give it an attempt again. Right. right. And I wrote up something, I, you know, and I think it had to do with Neverwinter Nights or something like that. A module. Okay. Right. And I applied. I went through that. And, and I even went to the office. And I looked around and what struck me, and I'd even read an article from somebody that I was like, well, you know what? I think I was glamorizing it. And mm. nowadays, even more than it was, this was like, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago. Nowadays, it's even worse. Unless you get, can get tied up with a kind of, a, tied into a small company, like a startup independent, where you can sort of really have an impact on what's being designed and developed, I think that's cool. That sort of harkens back to the old days. The unfortunate kind of truth, though, especially for the bigger gaming companies,
2: mm-hmm. is when
1: you come in, you come in like in a tester role. You may do zero coding. You're just sitting, mm-hmm. literally, literally sitting there, you know, like working out your thumbs, you know, <laughs> eight hours, 10 hours a day, right? right? And and that may be what you're relegated to for months on end, year, mm-hmm. maybe whatever. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to be the great game guy coming up with this huge game you may not really get that opportunity. And even when you maybe break in, let's say you break into the design, the developer role, they'll give you a little section. they will be like, okay, we need you to work on this tiny little section of the game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so you're not even getting kind of the full breadth of, of what's being designed, developed and really, where you can sort of let your imagination go wild. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's where kind of the reality of, of what the gaming industry is. And it's a okay. lot of long hours and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, so that's why, you know, that's why it would have been better breaking in early because then you would have you rise to the top the, es- the, the upper echelon where you get more input to these things mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that that's uh, I, I never really considered that but uh, it's good good to know for sure Because I, I I enjoy playing some myself. I was wondering uh what is like the best video game ever made as far as you're concerned
1: Whoa, okay. Um I'll tell you one thing I really enjoyed playing with my kids um, mm-hmm. is boulders gate
0: Baldur's gate Yeah, cool. Baldur's
1: gate and they're coming up I think with a sequel it's been rumored. and I think my one of my kids showed me that mm-hmm. right uh, and when we did something kind of funny with boulders gate like you can you can animate a skeleton or something so my younger son was really too young to play and there's only mm-hmm. two controllers right at the time and we he really wanted to be part of it you know part, part of what we we're playing so my my, my uh, older son, we convinced him that the skeleton was him and we gave him a controller that wasn't actually connected, <laughs> right, and he sat there and he never really figured it out. A couple of times he's like, well, it's not moving the way I'm trying to move, <laughs> like, don't, don't worry about it, it's fine, don't worry, you know, yeah, and the whole game, man, I mean, years later, he was like, yeah, hey, you guys,
0: that's hilarious. That's a great franchise. I, uh, I, I like RPGs like that. So, uh, you had mentioned that you don't drink caffeine, so you get energized by just your daily routine and, uh, your daily non-negotiables are, are pretty much just, uh, well, you, you kind of touched on that, but is there a way to kind of summarize that again, I guess?
1: Yeah, I, I think like doing like a, some sort of physical thing in the morning, yoga, stretching something to sort of get the <laughs> blood moving. Um, Perfect. you know, keeps you limber. Uh, And then I try to get in a decent meal to eat. I mean, some people feel intermittent fasting is better and you just go without. I I think you have to take that on a case by case basis, know how you feel. Mm -hmm. Um, But you certainly, you know, the the issue with caffeine, right, is that when you rely on it. Now, if you're having a cup a day, I think it's a non-issue. Right. Okay. But if you're literally relying on that to jumpstart your day, what you'll find is over time, you now re- eat two to three cups. Four, it like keeps increasing. Why? Because that's literally tapping your adrenals, saying produce more cortisol, right? Mm. Adrenaline. And eventually the, the adrenals can't respond anymore. You've tapped them out and then you have a whole, I mean, this is a huge problem in society, but enormous adrenal fatigue. Hmm. And, and the coffee just makes it worse. You're just, you know, um, th- th- there's a saying in Chinese medicine about um, it's the difference between Echinacea and Astralogus. Right. And you know, hmm. th- the saying is basically that Echinacea is trying to flog, beat a dead, you know, a tired horse to make him go faster. Horse is tired. You can whack them as much as you want. They're not going any faster. Astragalus, on the other hand is bringing that tired horse to water, giving them rest and giving them water. Now you'll get more, more out of them. Hmm. Right. So it's important to keep that energy level up because you can try to artificially stimulate it. You will reach a ceiling on that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not only just a law of diminishing returns, you will actually become more tired over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Ironically. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know these things. And it's good to know how your body responds as well. Uh, so, so top programming languages to learn if you were kind of, if you kind of heard this conversation and, Regardless of your experience, like what what would kind of be like a top like Brett's top programming languages to learn? Wow, get uh,
1: yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I love Python. I think it's a great mm-hmm. if for nothing else, it's a great prototyping language. I think it's it's a it's one that's probably the easiest to ramp up on, frankly, and, okay. and do something productive with it. Right? You don't have to use all the advanced features and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a I was actually going to do a post on this, but I, I think from an opportunity level. I think learning JavaScript is strictly from an opportunity level. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: That's probably the best way to go in terms of the number of jobs that will be available to you because Mm -hmm. with the advent of angular and react and things like that, that Mm the server side platforms that you now can develop an application, both sides by having that knowledge. Mm. Right? So if you're strictly looking at, well, how can I land a job pretty quickly? That's probably the way that you can land something fairly quickly because let's say you've learned JavaScript. Well, they don't have React or Angular, but they're using normal JavaScript, jQuery, whatever and you know, HTML. Well, okay, I'll work on the front end. Right. Maybe you find a place that you know is, is willing to open the back end to these other technologies, and so now you've you've got more stuff to choose from. Um, you know, so I'd probably go that direction, uh, and, and I think it probably doesn't hurt in time to even learn something like Java. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and maybe the last on the list would probably be C++, C okay. or C++.
0: Yeah, Java has that new, uh, like their licensing is kind of, it's become stricter. So yes. unless it for it's for personal.
1: Horrible.
0: Yep. That's a little yeah. bit of a bummer, but what can you do, I guess?
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, but but there are problems that are not solved as well through Python or the other languages that are, are solved well with Java, or for that matter, C++. Hmm, Okay. So, that's a getting back about the tool. It's finding the best tool for the job, not right. getting into sort of ideological warfare about this is best. That's best. Mm,
0: yeah. I love it. Well, this has been a really rewarding experience, Brett. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been an honor to interview you.
1: So, yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be on. So yeah. I appreciate it, man.
0: Cool. Uh, did we, did we leave anything off the table? Oh, I don't
1: know, man. We, we went almost double. So <laughs> yeah, so this is great. Did not feel like it.
0: Okay, yeah, the um I, I do want to make sure that folks know how to get a hold of you.
1: Oh, so I am a, an instagram wise wise guy developer mm-hmm. uh, in, the wise guy developer on Instagram. Uh, I am trying to start stuff up in YouTube. I will get that going at some point. okay uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me right now
0: is Instagram to that. cool, yeah, I'll make sure that we got links in the show notes and stuff to to catch you there, so. All right. Right. Well, Brett, thanks so much. Have a wonderful day and I'll be talking to you soon. righty?
1: Thanks a lot, Ben. This was great, man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. (laughs)